0: Welcome to episode 26 of the Rebel Matters podcast. This week's episode is going to be sort of a reversal of the rules. Instead of asking the questions, Orla Peach, who works with us at Ackley, was asking me some questions about my recent trips to Palestine to this year. And it is a timely episode because we have a pop-up shop for Palestine at Ackley in our strength and conditioning facility in Cork City Centre happening on Sunday the 16th of December, 11am to 6pm, where we're going to be selling lots of goods that we have brought in directly from the West Bank most of the suppliers that I met when I was out there. So before we get stuck into this episode it was actually a really good opportunity for me to get some thoughts out about my trips and about how I felt that it was connected with a lot of things that have happened in Ireland and in the six counties in particular. But I also recorded some stuff when I was over there and I want to start off this episode with a couple of short snippets that I recorded from my trip to Hebron in particular, which is one of the cities of the West Bank, which is under very, very heavy occupation by the Israeli army and basically they're there to protect the settlers that are being moved into Hebron. The main shopping street in Hebron, Shuada Street, has been closed down for many years and one shopkeeper in particular called Menir managed to keep his shop open throughout all the times where the Israelis were really trying to squeeze the economic life out of the street and his shop is still open. I visited that shop twice in March and in April this year. And got a chance to record a couple of bits and pieces with him when I was in the shop in August. So I'm going to start off with that. And it really shows you the impact that the closure of the street has had on their life. And also the positive impact that people going to the West Bank and visiting his shop has had on his life and on the life of his family. The second clip is of a Palestinian telling us a little bit about the settlement project in Hebron. We went through two settlements and talked about how they were established and the measures that the Israeli army have taken to protect those settlers in Hebron. He talks a little bit about the extent of the observation and the surveillance that the Israeli army have on the residents of Hebron, the Palestinian residents, mostly Uh, to serve the settlers that live there. There are over 150 watchtowers in Hebron and over 250 cameras. There's also a metal net that goes down on top of the old town, the old market of Hebron to protect the Palestinian shopkeepers and shoppers from things being thrown down from above by settlers and by soldiers. Stones, glass bottles, pieces of metal, liquids, urine and even acid gets thrown down on top of them. So it really is a horrific thing to experience and it's a very blatant denial of human rights and very heavy oppression by the Israeli army that's gone in Hebron. So that was just kind of one aspect of the trip to Palestine and I think it's important to hear what the people have to say about their, their living conditions out there. So listen to that first and then after that we'll get stuck straight into a chat that I had with Orla just going through some of the thoughts and experiences that I had while I was out there and I hope it'll give you a a bit of a perspective that you might not always hear in the mainstream media about what's happening in Palestine and also how it relates to me in particular and also to us here in Ireland. So, that's a carja
1: We are feeling happy when we have somebody visiting us because by your coming here, you can make life in our area. Also, by your coming, it's part of that you support us to be still standing here. From this point, I'm saying it all time, we are breathed from your lungs. This is the important that I like to say it. First, second, you are in the area it was full of life in time ago, but today it is as a ghost town. No much people are visiting us here, but it's good that we have number of people is visiting us. Now we have a number of pictures showing how is the life it was before. It's before 2000. Uh, You are in the Shohada Street. You can say that you are in the end of the Shohada Street or you can say the that you are in the entrance of Shohada Street. This is one of the pictures that's showing how is the life before 2000. This is, if we are saying this is the entrance of the Shohada street, we can say this is the exit. When you are walking this way, there is a settlement, it's called Abraham Avino. That settlement, it's 1988, but before it was fruit and vegetable market. It was the main and it is in the center of the town. It was busy, full of life. And now it is as a settlement. We can't reach there. It's forbidden for us to reach that area.
2: From here we can see the first settlement. The settlers established it in the middle of the old city of Hebron. That building with the triangle on the roof. This building is called bet Hadassah. It used to be a medical center running by the Jewish community who lived in Hebron during the 20s. But then it was changed to become a primary school. In 1979, 40 women with their children they occupied this building by force. One year later, after the attack, when six soldiers get killed, the Minister of Settlement built the third floor for them and allowed for them to bring the rest of their families and they started to send a financial fund to them. Next to it, this building is still a Palestinian house. The entrance for it, it's from here. And you can see this metal net that covering the street from the beginning all the way until the end. But even though that you see this is a huge metal net, but if you look there, you will see that bridge that link this building with this rooftop, which is also confiscated by military reasons since 2001. So settlers still have an access from that building, through that bridge to this roof to reach the other side of the street. Again, it's happening in front of the soldier's eyes. Behind you, you will see one of the main watchtowers. In the old city of Hebron in H2 area in general, we are talking about 155 watchtowers like this, in addition to 250 cameras like this, controlling the daily life and everything that's happening here. That's why when we started, I told you, keep smiling, because literally now at the mosque checkpoint, they knew that a group will come soon to the checkpoint. Show them the wise smile. This is called Abraham-Avino settlement, the biggest settlement. It was built in 1982, and behind it, it used to be the old vegetables and fruit market in the old city of Hebron. And you can look at this metal net, you can see what kind of things they are throwing all the time. It's not only the rubbish, sometimes they throw liquid, like urine, dirty water chloracid water, everything depends on the settlers' mood. And of course everything happening in front of the soldiers' eyes. If you stand here, you will see a military watch tower with soldiers serving there 24-7. Behind you, another one with soldiers also serving 24-7. So everything is controlled by the army. The army have one mission in Hebron providing protection for settlers, which is immediately so a settler attacking Palestinian, it's not allowed for them to interfere, but in the moment when the Palestinian decide to defend himself, he will get arrested directly. And now when we go back to the old mosque, you will see another huge metal net full of stones. It's not thrown by settlers, it's thrown by the soldiers who are serving on that rooftop. Because the building on the second floor, it's completely evacuated since 2000, again, for security reasons.
3: What made you actually go to Palestine in the first place? And what was that draw that you had to go there?
0: I had a curiosity about Palestine for a long time. And it probably stems back to the fact that there's quite a strong connection with the, the Republican movement in Belfast. And, and nationalists in Belfast, I guess, or in the north, have a strong connection with Palestine. Even now, mm-hmm. if you go down... In West Belfast, you'll see some Palestinian flags flying mm-hmm. around the fall road and whatnot. So I think it stems from there. And I guess it was more of a curiosity to find out exactly how, how alike we were because there was always that, that thing where people were saying, like, "We're there's a similar struggle going on that we had in, and we still have in Ireland compared to the struggles that are going on in other places of the world, like the Basque Country and yeah. Palestine. So it probably started from there.
3: And do you think as well that there's an element that a lot of what we hear over here about what goes on in Palestine might be at a little bit of a disconnect? Or do you think we get a lot of what goes on over there in the media properly?
0: Yeah, th- I think that's probably one of the main issues with the, the perception of what's going on in Palestine. There's a lot of similarities with the way that the the conflict in Ireland was perceived the, the, that media from, say, from that the character. 70s to um, that's really probably up until the Good Friday agreement, agreement and beyond. The perception that was p- p- portrayed in the media about what was going on in Ireland was that Catholics and Protestants just didn't like each other because of their religious differences and that they were, t- therefore, at war and wanted to kill each other, which yeah. really wasn't like that at all for us on the street in Belfast. Um, I don't know anybody who has a, a religious difference mm. with someone and none of my friends, certainly, most of my friends don't even go to Mass at all. Like I can't yeah. even remember the last time I was at Mass, so it was never a religious difference. But at the same time, there was uh, economic discrimination and discrimination in terms of employment and education and housing and all the things that make uh, living a proper life and a kind of like prosperous life uh, were 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 not in abundance like, for for yeah. the for the Catholic for Catholic communities because of the fact that. Um, the discrimination was that was being levied against them but so I think that in Palestine it's very similar there's a danger there that you fall into the narrative of Muslims and Jews that, yeah. that just really don't like each other because they've got different religious beliefs mm. but that's not the case at, at all out there like it's um and unfortunately I think that that narrative is put forward to Jewish people who are moving to pa- Palestine or yeah. Israel that they they think they're going there for religious uh, purposes which I'm sure, like on a personal level, they probably be- they they believe that they're going there for religious purposes as mm. well. They probably are getting a religious sort of experience when they go there. But the the thing is that there's a big difference between Judaism, the religion, and Zionism, which is a completely different concept. And that that concept is basically based on forming a country that is uh, solely for Jewish people. And it's the Zionist project is the thing that's the big problem in yeah. Palestine, in that. They're, they're dead set on progressing their, set, their project of building settlements in areas that are within sort of Israeli, the Israeli domain now and areas that are in the, within the Palestinian domain. They're, they're going ahead with building the settlement project and along with a, a massive amount of, uh, say, civil rights and human rights violations yeah. that, that go along with it.
3: And that's kind of what we're seeing when we see the walls and we look at the actual, what the activities that are going on in and around Ada Refugee Camp.
0: And There's so many things that are going over there. It's, it's hard to even to describe it, but I think that, um, which is why I went over there, because I think that it's easy for You know, it's good to have a common bond with the place, Mm. but at the same time, it's another thing to go and actually see what's happening and get a deeper understanding of what's going on over there.
3: Yeah, because you haven't really... I mean, you can have that bond, but you can't necessarily say you really fully understand it because you haven't actually been within that environment and you haven't seen the people and how it impacts on them specifically.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as well as that... there's a lot of differences also okay. which is that's you have to go and experience it for yourself to see the differences yeah. which is important it's, it's it, the struggle for the palestinians isn't exactly the same as the struggle that we had in ireland although there are a lot of similarities like I, like being over there one of the things that struck me is the first time i was over there in march i just started taking notes on my phone about what i started seeing things that it was like deja vu hmm. from see, seeing the way that the British army were in Belfast so I just started noting the things down in my phone of things that felt like deja vu for me Like, and so there's like
3: things that felt like home <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah. The, the things like the way they have the checkpoints and the roadblocks were were exactly the same uh, they're run mm-hmm. the same way the same sort of infrastructure uh, the checkpoint that they have in Hebron that closes off Al-Shawada Street which is like Patrick Street in Hebron they've put a a complete block on it it's like a ghost town which is that's an issue by itself maybe we can touch on uh, yeah. what's going on there and um, the way that say the Israeli army target trying and incite violence on trying to bring people out on the street by targeting kids arresting kids shooting kids dead yeah. like there was two girls um, in our area um, were shot dead by plastic bullets Julie Livingstone and Caroline Kelly yeah. And when you see the violence that the Israeli army have, have carried out against children, even in, in 2018 alone, yeah. that's, that's a, a particular strategy that they're, that they're taking part in to try and bring out a reaction that'll give them more justification for even more violence against the Palestinian people. It's very hard not to react to something
3: like that. I mean, you know, it's a child. They're really very much just victims of their circumstance and that
0: on both sides, you know. Exactly. And the day that I came back from Palestine on the first occasion, uh, whenever that was back in March, I was walking home from the bus stop from the bus station in Belfast, uh, walking up to meet one of my brothers and was walking past the, the peace line, as they call it in Belfast, is a big dividing wall. Mm. And earlier that day, I had been in Bethlehem, standing beside the apartheid wall in Bethlehem, and it's the same sort of infrastructure. It's designed to keep people apart. Um, the the perception or the narrative that the security forces give that that's sort of a security wall. That's the same thing, but it's that's it's, that's nonsense, really, when you look at it from a Palestinian context. If Palestinians want to get to the other side of the wall, they'll they'll know how to do it. So if you're dead set on doing something that's going to breach the security, the wall is not going to stop you doing it. Like no, you just walk around the wall, go yeah. to this <laughs> part of where the wall ends the and then yeah. come around the other side. So really, those things are made to make life as difficult as possible for Palestinians. Um,
3: and also, I imagine there's a there's a huge psychological impact of having such a visible division within like a very common walking area. You know, so like this is your main street. Why is this wall here? You know?
0: yeah like the the walls really there um in in the West Bank are there to suffocate the economic life and suffocate the will of people to carry on with the way that they used to live so that they can just move out and then they can come in and build more settlements like there's been people who have had babies at the at the barricades or the checkpoints there's been people who haven't been able to get medical attention because the soldiers wouldn't let them through uh and the ambulance couldn't get get to them on time there are people who have to go off and stay with friends or relatives or somewhere else because they can't get home and really it it has got a lot to do with the degradation of the people as well and just embarrassing people making people feel like they're not wanted or they're not um they haven't got the same rights as others, and that's that's a big part of the the, th- the thing over there as well. Like that, I mean, that's only one problem that they have over there. So <laughs> we could do a podcast on every single <laughs> one of them. But uh, one of the places that I was mostly based in the second time I was over there this year was the Ada Refugee Camp. Yeah. Um, as you know, like we were made a good connection with people at the Ladji Center, which is the community center that serves the Ada Camp. That was uh, it's a volunteer-based community center started by the people. Uh, from the Aida camp and one of the Aida camp is a a refugee camp that was started in 1950 after the first so I don't know like it's 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 kind of um, it's hard to pick a starting point how far do you go back.
3: 1950 is quite it's a lot longer back than I would have thought but obviously there that kind of speaks to issues that were happening there long before we may have been even aware of.
0: Well like in brief and, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to go over there because you have to go back and try and find out where, where it all stemmed from. Mm-hmm. and really uh, there's the the 1947 and 1948 um, was the what they call the, the Nakba in, in Palestine, which is the, was the first sort of mass ex forced exodus of the Palestinians because of the Israeli invasion in the Palestinian areas. So that mm-hmm. happened in 1948 um, and that then is when a lot of people fled. Outside of Palestine to places like Jordan and stuff, and they fled from areas within Palestine to other areas of Palestine that were safer. And that's when they, the refugee camp got started up in the aftermath of that there. Now, the, uh, the one I would say massive misconception that people have about the formation of Israel is that it was on the back of the Jews having nowhere to go yeah. after World War II. But in actual fact, my presumption yeah, actually is
3: why there was that mass movement back in.
0: I would say that that has got to To do with it for sure, to, a degree, uh, to yeah. a degree, but the formation of Israel has got more to do with the Zionism movement, uh, the the Zionism and the Zionist movement. The
3: and that's essentially they're moving back to their holy land or their
0: yeah. That's in essence that's what it is, but it's it's more of a political mo- movement, I would say, than a spiritual movement. Uh, the first Zionist Congress was actually in uh, in the 1897 mm. so before the first world war even happened that, yeah. that this project was being formulated and then after the second world war then that was when it, whenever it happened so the Aida camp was started in 1950 after that after the Nakba, um in 48 and then the second big push of the mass exodus of Palestinians happened in 1967 so there are sort of two categories of refugees really two main categories of refugees in Palestine there's the 48 refugees and the 67 refugees and in Ada then have a mix of of both there and I mean they're facing massive problems to of you know massive uh Obstacles to living. Yeah. And there
3: as in there are actually refugees that would have been from both of those periods still within that camp. It's it's not that they've been relocated elsewhere. It's actually they're still in that area.
0: Yeah, I think most of the most of the refugee camps that were set up then, the, the I mean one of the big issues for refugees and Palestinian and Palestinian refugees is the the rate right of return. Okay. There's two types of refugees really um, for, uh, that we can talk about in, in terms of the Palestinian uh, the Palestinians. There's a... Palestinian refugees who are outside of Palestine, mm. for example, like in Jordan, yeah, yeah. and then there's Palestinians who are refugees within Palestine that moved from different, er- they had to move from different areas, so they're sort of internally displaced Palestinians. And the, I mean, there hasn't been any return of refugees, which is a problem. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's that's one of the main issues there, along with a lot of other things. Like the Aida refugee camp itself is surrounded. By six watchtowers. It's completely walled in. It's in a small, has a small footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they're under constant surveillance from the army. So you very
3: much have like children who are born into refugee status just by virtue of their parents living there.
0: Yeah, that's the way it is. That's exactly what it is. You've got basically, you know, probably three or four generations now, like, yeah, yeah, that are are there. You think about it. Like the, um, there's videos on YouTube that you can check out of the army attacking the the Laji center built the playground mm. recent in recent times and a five side court and there's videos the of, actually, yeah. of the army attacking that with tear gas when the kids are in the playground. There's the community center where it's getting filled up with tear gas while the volunteers are inside there. There was a woman who got trapped in her house and an Israeli soldier shot a tear gas thing through the window and she she died of um, in, inhaling the the tear gas. And I mean, it's horrific, really. Like that, they've got these launchers where they can launch massive amounts of tear gas at the same time into the camp from the top of a van. They have this other thing that they call skunk water. That's this like this biological matter that is attached to a hose that's on top of a sort of a tank that has all the water, and they spray you it spread on, it spray it on for- houses. Oh, and right. it takes apparently months for the smell so they to go no away.
3: Living there because obviously it's probably putrid or.
0: I mean, they haven't got any choice but to live there, oh, at yeah, like the yeah. end of it. But that, uh, it's making it, it
3: uninhabitable to a degree, or making yeah. living extremely
0: exactly. difficult. Exactly. Like they can, the, the, the edu- all I mean. And speaking to people from the, from the camp, they and from speaking to people in other camps as well, they'll say that the the problems that one refugee camp face are the same as other the camp. The problems that other refugee camps face. I think that some camps have certain problems in greater measure. Mm than others but by and large like they're all kind of similar education is a big problem Uh, employment opportunities is a big problem for Palestinians not just in refugee camps but freedom of movement around the West Bank if you're talking about the West Bank in particular but it applies in Gaza as well like you have to have a permit to scratch your arse over there. It's like, you have to have a permit to, if you have a farm to farm the land, you have to have a permit to carry the tools. You have to have a permit to have a car. You have to have a permit to drive your car.
3: Permission for someone else to actually just
0: live a normal life. On a particular road. You You have to have a permit to go to work. Like everything you have to have a permit for. I think there's, there's over 50, 50 different types of permits that you have to have and you have to get them renewed on a regular basis. And, um, Th- that's another measure that's being made that's that's there just to make life as difficult as possible for Palestinians over there. Like another massive issue that they have is uh, is water. Mm. And if you take the the, the refugee camp for as an example, obviously it's very warm over there yeah. for for most of the year. Like so, uh, water is essential as uh, as it is for any any human beings. But the the Israeli government control the, the water supply and only will turn the water on in the camp maybe for four or five hours a week or something like that. Or they just decide how so long... they're the-
3: scrambling to get all of that when the line opens, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah, when the line opens, they have to fill up their water tanks. Uh, you'll notice that when you're over there, the, all the Palestinian houses have these black tanks on top of them. That's yeah. a very easy way to tell whether it's a settlement or a, pa- a Palestinian okay. house, is that the settlements have running water on top, unlimited supply, and... I think they have something like, I could be wrong in these figures, but I think that they have something like 500 litres per capita per day, something like that in settlements. And in the, the aid refugee camp, I think it's something like 30 litres per capita per day, which That's is insane. way below what you need to, to live um, properly. So they fill up these water tanks. Not but th-
3: comfortably, just properly, actually,
0: just effectively. Yeah. The problem with the aid camp and the water is that it's built on a hill and the, the pump is at the bottom of the hill. So the
3: pressure even to get it up there exactly. it delays it fully as well. The, as the houses way.
0: fill up their tanks one by one as they're going up the hill. But by the time the water is switched off, the, the houses atop mightn't have even had any water. So uh, there's very much a sense of having to, I think, share resources there and things like that. Do um, so you find
3: that that actually has increased a strong sense of community amongst the people there, that there is that sharing aspect?
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I, I was there for two weeks in August. And, you know, I think that's um, to get a proper sense of the ins and outs of you'd life there you'd want to stay there okay. and be there like i was part i was there as part of. was a group there so mm. um we, really yeah, different we were doing experience exactly yeah. than being there by yourself say mm. or being there for a longer period of time but there definitely is a sense of um there's a will to do things for themselves and not be dependent on um support from the state yeah. like that's another thing that's that's worth discussing like is that the Palestinian Authority is uh, was formed after the Oslo Accords and it's supposed to be sort of like a representative body for the Palestinian people and the, um, have the, the benefit of the Palestinian people at, at heart but realistically it is in the pocket of it's, it's in the pocket of the Israeli government yeah. so they in a sense are hamstrung and I would say that you know, it seems like the the, the Palestinian Authority, the the way that's set up, has been sort of hamstrung or um, sort of muted in a big sense because of the fact that they um, are dependent on they get their funding from the Israeli government. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a it
3: complicates everything. Right? Yeah,
0: exactly. So I think that there's there's a massive will there for the people in the refugee center and in the camp and and with the with the Palestinians in the West Bank in general to be able to do to be self sufficient, to set up projects for um, independently and to do them in the way that they want to do them and to, to make them as sustainable as possible, so that they can maintain a stream of like transfer of culture and um, information to educate their young people yeah. the ADA camp and the Laji Center have a community health worker program that they started recently and that's another thing there's the, the that's the only health care sort of system that they have within that area they had to set it up themselves they set up a playground for the kids there I think they were the first camp in Palestine to set up a playground um, yep. for kids, they have got a rooftop garden that we were working on actually in August on top of the center. They've got a five-a-side court. They've got a cultural department where they teach the kids music and dance. The Dakhba, the traditional Palestinian dance. They've got a media department as well. So constantly
3: where, communicating that cultural heritage and intangible heritage and trying to maintain
0: it. Yeah. I mean, I think that in, in say, I'm not sure where to say in the Western world, but in Ireland, I can see it that when everything is comfortable and you're taking things for granted, it can be easy to let cultural things slide. But when you're... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like when you're in a position where your existence is being threatened and there's an oppressive force that that essentially just wants to wipe out your whole culture and your history and your way of living, then then people start to realize the importance of transferring the culture and giving people... An identity and a sense of themselves. I suppose, when,
3: I suppose our only comparison to that would be like after you open the Gaefyoc and the Gaillig, and we look back at how the Irish language, the resurgence there, and how people started moving to try and save that
0: after years of maybe cultural dis, like dismantling here. Yeah, I mean you can see it in West Belfast now. It's yeah. like the in, in
3: Darug, isn't it? That's your
0: well in Dromdaragh they're they're connected with Conor de Gaillig, but yeah. so there is that movement that they're, and they're really focusing on um, bringing the bringing through of the Irish Language Act yeah. and through Stormont, but. Like, aside from that, um, the Irish language movement in Belfast and a really interesting podcast I did with Seamus McShan, which is a few episodes before this one, but the Irish language in Belfast over the last 40, 50 years has been very much independent of the political situation in the sense that there, if there's a connection there because the Republic movement has, has a sort of represented... The Irish language at times on a political level, yeah. but the core of the Irish language movement is independent of any political situation. It seems in be a, in lot a sense, of
3: young people as well, actually, as well, opposed to maybe their their parents' generation and the grandparents' generation. It's well, when I just looking at it from maybe an outsider's perspective, there it seems to be a lot of younger people are actually moving behind it a lot more.
0: Yeah, like the the people who are around about my age have the generation beforehand to thank for the fact yeah. that we can speak Irish, the fact that we were able to get an education through the Irish language, yeah. that there's now a GA club there that are doing all their club dealings and playing their matches and their training through Irish, uh, Lake Raleigh. the fact that there's a restaurant, cultural centre, theatre, art gallery, uh, the fact that there's, you know, like all those things were sort a radio station, all those things mm-hmm. were started up by people who, Wanted to do it not for political gain, but, but to retain that history exactly and
3: retain that culture and that aspect of culture because language is a significant part, I think, of Irish identity and maybe something that we take for granted, maybe in the rest of Ireland.
0: I would say probably that the a similar thing is happening in in the West Bank and yeah. uh, with the way that say the, the in the Lajis Center that they're teaching the kids the, the traditional music and dance that if you don't have if someone's trying to wipe you out and you haven't got a sense of who you are, then it's a lot easier, to, a lot do easier to do it. Yeah. Like that you'll see that pattern in any of, say, Britain's colonial projects mm-hmm. over the over the centuries like that the first thing they'll try and do is wipe out the language wipe yeah. out the culture wipe out the way of life that and then
3: then identity then is gone so you have nothing to connect to so obviously you're going to connect to the most prominent identity that's next to you which is obviously what's imposing on you
0: exactly they'll want like a blank canvas just to come in yeah. and impose impose their own and and by and large they the colonial powers of that that have that we've experienced in the world have their interests aren't in the health and well-being of the people that are colonizing their their mm. interests are in the they're economic domination of the people that they're modifying
3: them in a way that they can yeah. exactly,
0: and that's exactly what's happening in Palestine as well. Which I think is the essence of the the counter argument to the fact that it's a religious conflict that's going on out there. That's people don't like we never hear about the fact that there are massive gas fields off the coast of Gaza and that there are um, huge multinational companies that have very strong connections with America that are mining that gas yeah. and that that's a big reason why there's a sort of um, no-go zone off the coast of Gaza for the fishermen where they used to be able to fish there. They're mining huge amounts of gas there and a huge economic interest in um, hoarding that for themselves. Not giving it to the Palestinian people and not letting the Palestinian people be sort of have any measure of self determination and self governance and self sufficiency, and that's that's a big problem as well. Like you don't you don't hear that aspect of it on the news at all.
3: No, no, I wouldn't have anyway. I kind of I take my well my opinion on it might be just from the lay person who actually doesn't know a huge amount of it. So a lot of what I know is actually because of you and because of the link that we're actually setting up through Eclae. Um, And just to go back to that, so you said you were there in August, but that was your second trip there. And before that, um, Akhle had an actual connection, didn't you, with Palestine through the, um, there was a football kind of group that came to Ireland, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that your first connection or was that?
0: That was probably the first time. I mean, there... That was the first time that actually had a connection mm-hmm. with anyone from say any groups in Palestine or whatever. There was the football team from the Al Halal Football Academy from Gaza. We're doing a tour around Ireland and that was um organized by uh Zoe Lawler and that she brought that, that team over and gave them a, a brilliant tour around Ireland. And for mm-hmm. a lot of those kids, it was their first time outside of Palestine. Mm. I think and there was um they went to Manor Hamilton and Limerick. I think they were in Galway. I think they were in Dublin. And then when they were in Cork, I just went over and, and spoke to them and invited, invited them to come into the gym. And we made a connection then with that team. They just went absolutely insane in the gym for an hour and they'd never been in a gym before. And they're, the, the 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 guy who was looking after them, Aed, we made a, a connect, maintained the connection with him afterwards. And whenever I was going over in March, I was going to run, I ran in the Half marathon there the yeah. Palestine half marathon, but before that we had just raised a couple of quid and we met him and gave it to him and he he we donated that to to the club and that was kind of just one small positive thing that that we that we could that we were able to do and really it was just with the help of everyone just chipped in whenever they could it was the yeah, community yeah. that are around the gym and people who are in Cork and our friends and stuff who all just chipped in a couple of quid here and there and. We, people from actually, people from home and from around different mm-hmm. places gave money as well. But um I guess that was kind of the, the, the start of that, that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Then I met up with the people in Laji Centre. We were there for St. Patrick's Day. Then after that, um again, made a good connection with a few people there, especially Salah, one of the founders of the Laji Centre. And now we're, we're just trying to bring that on to the next level to see what we can do for them. Like, I mean, when you're over in Palestine and there's so many things going on, and it's I think it's not... It's, but I think when international people are going over there, especially like the the attitude that I had the first time and the second time as well, I was going over there to observe, not to yeah. like try and go over and like like be trying to figure out what's going on and try and solve so I'm the going whole to go thing. You're not going to fix this problem exactly. Because that's, I'm coming over
3: with my ideas, and in reality, a lot of what you can do is really outside of it.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that that is true. There's, there's, you have to go over there. To observe yeah. and hear people talking and understand more what's going on because there are so many things going on. It is complex in a lot of ways. So, uh, getting hearing people's stories, I think, and making personal connections with people yeah. well, over there. That's, that was the main, main objective for me. I was glad now that we, that we're able to have this project on the go yeah. and we can do a little bit more, hopefully, to help people over there. Like the international help that and the international. Friends that that the Palestinians have the way that the they they need to be seen. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big that's a really important thing. I, I feel from over there is that they need to be seen by the international community, and the international community need to have their eyes open to what's actually going on there, and taking, you know, taking what we hear in the media and questioning it. And I think that's probably one thing that I really learned from the fact of. The fact that the conflict and, and the war in Ireland was still going on whenever I was growing up in Belfast was that the
3: visibility wasn't really there, was it really in the media?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the media, like the media, for example, like the, in the Palestinian uh, case, the media that we get is controlled by America. America is yeah. fully supportive of Israel, and vice versa. So we're never going to get the full story. You can no, t- so
3: we're relying on people that we know going in there or getting that kind of first hand experience and communicating that back.
0: Yes, and I think making personal connections with people yeah. over there and getting the stories from them, there's probably place, like there are organizations that you'll get more uh, genuine account of what's happening over there. Like if you look at the, the Great March of the Return in Gaza and the way that the news was being portrayed there, it was like that it was, you know, the Israeli snipers were shooting kids, uh, snipers were shooting kids with bullets that were exploding on impact that the kids weren't doing anything that there were completely no danger to anybody
3: because they're children again it's not yeah,
0: yeah. medics doctors like the, I mean it was indiscriminate people who were even I mean even if somebody was there throwing stones like what's a stone going to do against that, a man with a gun yeah or that's a tear gas gun like, very away far away as well yeah. so the way that was portrayed is, is um, very biased and a lot of the time completely untrue as well so it's important to to be able to see that,
3: and is that what kind of spurred you to go back the second time and do the interviews um, that you did when you were in the refugee camp or in the West Bank?
0: Yeah, um, I think it was. I think that the first time I went there it was a very intense uh, trip yeah. in the in the sense that like you were constantly going to meet people and going to the next organization. And I think uh,
3: and it's a lot to take in, you know, if you're going over there and and seeing that firsthand. And just uh, my only memories when you were recounting it to us when you came back, it was very. Not that you like, not that it was hugely impacting, or it seems like it was hugely impacting, but definitely there had to have been an impact there, having seen something like that up close, and seeing those structures in place and that division very much active and
0: that violence very much active. The first time that I went over there, when I came back, like I was, like I was depressed we were out of shook my head. By it. <laughs> when I <laughs> came back, like you were shook, you know, uh, like uh, it over there you're meeting people you're active you're going from place to place you're there other people out there as well that i was with at that Mm. time and we were going around together and talking about it and things like that and but then when i ended up back in ireland like i went home to belfast for a few days had a went for a a couple of walks with a couple of friends and got (laughs) some stuff off the chest and whatever but then when i came back down to cork then i for sure it had a massive impact on like mental health i guess like took a while to get over it um Definitely. And it's, I think it's about maybe trying to find the place where at least I can say that we're doing something positive now Mm. as well. I think that's, that's important. Um, Something has to, because it would be awful that you go
3: and you do a trip like that and then you go, well, you know, I've seen it now. There's nothing I can do, which maybe some people have that when they go there and they kind of go, well, do you know what can be done? But at least when you came back, you took that experience and you're turning it into something positive and you're trying to make something positive out of it, that will continue.
0: Yeah, I think a big part of that has got to do as well with the fact that we go over there, It's anybody can go over there and they'll see what's happening. Mm. It, it's it's blatant. Like yeah. it, It's not as if you have to Find scratch it. the surface. <laughs> Having said that, the first time I was over there was just around Easter time and we were in Jerusalem. The um, So there was a lot of pilgrims there. Mm. And I would say that a lot of the pilgrims that were there were, had their head in the sand as to what was going on around there in the sense that there, there's a huge, there's a huge military presence in Israel, in Jerusalem, and which would be one of the most contentious issues of, of recent times and of historically as well, the fact that Israel claimed Jerusalem to be their capital. Yeah. And the, but the, there were people going around, saying their prayers, going doing the stations to the cross. I don't think that they were willing or open to seeing what was going on around them, the discrimination that was there. Like whenever, I was there the second time. There was young fellows getting arrested on the street just for being on the street. They yeah. weren't doing anything. Getting arrested by two and three soldiers at a time. So I think that the the danger is that 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 we're not open to our eyes aren't open to what's going on over there. And they're
3: not willing to actually step outside of the the line of the pilgrim path to actually observe what's going on. Maybe they don't care. I, well, I don't know if that's very fair to say to them. But you know, I, I feel if you go over to a place like that to engage in active pilgrim traditions you should also be engaging actively in what is actually going on in that country
0: for sure and the thing that you were just saying a earlier but personal
3: perspective for me but <laughs> you know I don't think you can you can really claim religious enlightenment or spirituality and then just turn a blind eye to what's clearly going on against the people yeah right, right on and, your and doorstep, it, it did you know?
0: seem like that was going on in the sense that there was a very high volume of, of pilgrims going around the place but then uh, um yeah do you feel that
3: there was also maybe the military were holding off a lot more on that activity because it was a high pilgrim time or
0: I don't think so. Like okay. if you walk down the old town in Jerusalem, like it's always very that heavily heavily like that. militarized. Okay. That's kinda of like the it's kind of like the epicenter of all the different religions that are there. The Christian religion, the the Jew the Jewish religion, the Muslim religion all kind of converge in and Jerusalem. I think that's actually an <laughs> important
3: point to make as well, that it is actually multiple faiths. It's not just one that's that's actively participating in that kind of an environment, so it's not You know, I think there's a tendency when we kind of promote or when we talk about Palestine, some people see it as maybe being anti-Semitic to say things like that. But in actual fact, there's a lot of people who take pilgrimage over there, you know. Well, the fact of the
0: matter is that Jews and Christians and Muslims have been living there for thousands of years together. Like the, the whole Zionist project of of Israel has only really kicked off from 1948. It's not that old. Like, there are mm-hmm. people... Like, I spoke to a woman in Aida Camp who was 100 years old. She was kicked out of her village by when the Israeli soldiers were coming down to, yeah. to take over it. Yeah. So it's not an old thing that the fact the the whole the Zionist project isn't an ancient it's project. It's
3: like 300 years or, you know... Way before that,
0: much. the Jew- Jewish people, Christian people and Muslim people live in, in, in total harmony. Even before the neck, but they were living together, you know, Mm. it's not... so. There's that
3: capacity for kind of communal living and for kind of, you know...
0: It just goes to show that it's not a religious conflict. Yeah, that would would be
3: my opinion. And I kind of, I think that's any time you would see it in the media when anyone goes, when we talk about Palestine and God, they shouldn't be doing that. There is an automatic fear that someone is going to go, well, now you're just being anti-Semitic. Well, actually, no, because there was that community there for a very long time and they're still actively... There and visiting so it, for me it didn't really it didn't really feel like that it comes it to bring it back to the example
0: of, of Ireland you know yeah. and they portray that it's very simplistic is what, yeah. I, is what I felt and I,
3: I wasn't, it, it's hard to pass or make a judgment on it then because you're like, oh, well, I, you don't want to be stepping on one group's toe over another, you know.
0: The, it to is. bring it back to that example of what was happening, say, for example, in more, most recent times in the North like it was portrayed in the media as Catholic versus Protestant fate, mm. which suited the British government and to large extent suited the government in the south of Ireland as well, mm. just to perpetuate that. But in actual fact, the... The Catholic communities were being heavily discriminated against, and the the fight was against a colonial power, the British government, the British army that were on the streets. You name it; you don't have to go back that far in, in Ireland where you'd wake up to go to school and there'd be a pile of British soldiers outside in your front garden, mm. or coming down, landing a helicopter in the middle of the pitch when you're trying to have a flipping hurling match, well, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, so there, that's not
3: it's very much it's different i think as well when you when you talk on the north like that because obviously that's in your lifetime like there's been a lot of change because of the peace process and it's really it really hasn't been that long when when you think about the difficulties that were going on up there but for obviously people maybe in the south you know they're so far removed from that kind of process because we're like third generation republic
0: yeah at the same time i don't think you have to. You don't have to scratch the surface too far no, to get back to understand that. You just have to be willing to you do have to, it. Yeah,
3: you have to open your eyes and be willing to have exactly. that discussion and that dialogue.
0: If one thing that you mentioned there, just the, even just the mention of the the term of the peace process, yeah. that's something that is eternally perpetuated by the Israeli government. The fact that there's a peace process actually happening out there. What's actually going on? Post Oslo agreement, Oslo Accords. Say they've had that that peace process ongoing in quote like in quotation marks or whatever, and really that's just another way for the Israeli government to give the international community a smokescreen, a smokescreen that the international community, mostly with vast majority, are very happy to accept, mm. to let on that there's something positive going on that they're trying to figure the problems out, but at this. On the other hand of the coin, then are driving on with their project of settlements. That's
3: almost a justification for what they're doing because they can do it under that. Or
0: no, it's a, it's the settlement project is completely illegal. It's mm. illegal under international law. You know, you can't just you, you can't just go into a village and say, right, we're Occupy taking this. We'll <laughs> see you <laughs> later. So they're doing that on a regular basis out there. It's not that they're doing it under the umbrella of the peace process. Uh, Term, it's that they're telling everybody on one hand that there's a peace process ongoing, and then on the other hand, confiscating land, evicting Palestinians, uh, you know, like cutting off the water supply. Everything that you can think of that is a violation of human rights is happening in Palestine now. And the very thinly veiled uh, sort of excuse that Israel can offer to the international community is the fact that there's a quote unquote peace process happening and then that's enough for the vast majority of the Western governments to accept that, that Israel, they're not doing anything wrong yeah. and then but it's it's absolute bullshit like so that's <laughs> <laughs> bleep that
3: out <laughs> <laughs> no we won't but yeah it's certainly I suppose if you're using the term peace process it, it presents the idea that there's actually something really there's a significant change coming about where they're doing proper humanitarian activity when in reality how that actually manifests might be very different behind the media wall behind the actual wall within those camps, within those communities.
0: Yeah, and it, it is up to the the governments in say in Europe to ways up to that, and I think mm-hmm. that the the or settlements or at least it bill that we
3: up to it, but maybe acknowledge that that's not enough. On yeah, paper, you
0: know, like the bill the bill that's getting passed through at the minute the the settlements bill that Francis Black has had a really um positive impact on getting that through is is a good step forward for Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to follow through on that for sure it, definitely i mean th- and another movement that's that's very um sort of like it's internationally widespread but needs full support of countries of, of every of every country that that values le- human life and values um human rights civil rights is the the boycott movement if you look mm-hmm. at if you go back to the apartheid in South Africa, the international boycott, I think, had a big part to play in the eventual downfall of the apartheid regime in Africa. In South Africa, and what's happening in Palestine is, again, very similar yeah. to what happened in South Africa. And in Ireland, actually in 1984, the dunce stores workers had a strike that, and they, they refused to handle the South African goods. It started by uh, Mary Manning was instructed by her union, done stores not to handle south african goods the workers walked out of done stores and then and refused then done stores had to stop buying south african goods and that's that's our as 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 international
3: The protest is, you can actually really have isn't yeah, it? yeah it's
0: an international responsibility it's a responsibility yeah. on on people who who value human rights to not buy things mm. that are being produced in settlement areas or being produced in israel and and especially produced in areas that, that have been confiscated from Palestinians, which is essentially the whole of Israel. Like, we, the, so
3: especially when you look at the map now, it's, it's quite quite alarming.
0: When you look at the map now, it's an interesting thing is that it comes back to that that thing about the peace process and mm. uh, one of the big terms within the. That are that are used as part of the, the peace process or a smokescreen is that there's going to be a two state solution that eventually they're going to have an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, but Palestinian the
3: Palestinian state is looking fairly small on that map.
0: Then, that's the problem. It? So that you can see <laughs> the map, uh, the, just, it,
3: it doesn't look like a state. You know, it just looks kind of like a small townland more than anything. You know, well the,
0: the strategy that the Israeli government are using for the settlements is that they'll build a settlement. In a certain place, yeah. So they'll clear that land of Palestinians, build a settlement. Then
3: probably won't be the high quality land. It probably won't be the most sustainable land.
0: Well, think I mean if they, they build that they build the settlements in, uh, on good land as well because they want to have make sure they have the resources to yeah. um, bring people over and let them live there. But then they'll start a little outpost, which essentially could be a shed somewhere. Could be twenty meters from the. Or a few miles from the from the settlement, the original settlement, and then the outpost then has to be supplied with electricity and water and be be guarded by the army. Mm-hmm. They'll guard that outpost, and then what they'll do is draw a circle around the settlement and the outpost and say, "Now this is the settlement," and then build all the roads and infrastructure around that. And it proves the point that the peace process is not a real thing because if it was, they would stop building all the settlements stop evicting people stop demolishing houses Mm. until they had sorted something out but in reality if you look at the last number of years the way the map has evolved the settlements are it's like it's like a game of join the dots they're build settlements and they'll build roads between the settlements and they're building an infrastructure in palestine that uh, that hoards the natural natural resources that hoards the land and that makes it very difficult for palestinians to move around freely uh and to make to live their their lives like if you're there was one good example that i got when i was whenever i was over there two good examples actually one of them is like if you have a if you had a farm on in, in palestine for example and the wall was built outside your back garden you would all of a sudden not be able to Get people to come into your house or meet at the farm and go in farmhouse and go into the farm. You'd have to go the whole way down to the bottom of the wall, which could be fifteen miles away, whatever. Come around the other side of the wall and get back onto your farm. Whereas you could have had initially. A group of people working on the farm together. They might not only allow just the owner of the farm to go onto the land. So you'll have, to and then he'll have to have a permit to carry the tools. He might not have a permit to drive, or he might have a permit to drive in the roads. So he'll have to walk down or get a taxi, get around, and then he might not so be it's able to. It impossible yeah, really. he might have to only be only be allowed to bring crops that he can carry, as opposed to having, you know, like a, a tractor or something to, to load up onto. Or
3: the team in place to be able to like bring exactly. The and
0: them. another example was a guy I actually met who. Israel built the wall, the Viden wall, and placed his house on the Israeli side of the wall and said, right, now you need to move out. And he obviously refused to move out. He's got a small farm there. And we were at this farm. They And he told me personally, he said that they, I don't remember exactly what his options were, but they told him, right, well, you can move out. We'll buy the place off you. Um, or you can come into business with us. We'll build a settlement here and then we can go you'll have a share of the profits or you can give us this land. It was certain says they were going to give him like 10 times more land elsewhere and he refused. And by one way or another, you know, it's funny how, how these sort of like force oppressive forces like this work. I think that eventually they decided to try and make it like they were after doing the Palestinians a solid, doing Mm -hmm. this little farmer a solid. So what they did was build a tunnel from his house underneath the wall that they had built and the tunnel so it's his house the wall which is massive and a tunnel underneath it that comes up on the other side of the wall a mining shaft (laughs) and has like a security fence on it he only can have one visitor per day he has to clear it with the Israeli authorities and um, he has to go through it himself to get to the shops there's nothing it's a vast expanse on his Mm. side of the wall there's nothing Mm. there it's just a big valley so he for anything that he wants to do he has to go in they've tried to demolish his house before and he's he's sticking it out there, but it's an absolutely insane situation, yet it's something that is marketed sort of by the Israelis as like, Oh look look at this where This was a positive. A <laughs> we positive did this thing. guy a salad. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Mental. really,
3: when you think about it. But you were talking about a street that was essentially like St. Patrick Street and how that has been completely closed off. And so is it that the businesses on that street are they active anymore? Or are they completely closed down? And what does it look like? So it?
0: that particular street is Al Shawari Street. It's on okay. it's in Hebron, which okay. is one of the cities of the West Bank. And what happened there actually was this is widely sort of documented by and large so people can look it up online and stuff like that there. But there was uh, there's a there's a big mosque there. It's the, Abrahimi Mosque. Uh, an ex-Israeli soldier came in with uh, an automatic rifle and opened fire on the on the worshippers there. Worshippers there, in 1994, killed a lot of people within the mosque. And in the aftermath of the mosque, a lot more people were killed in the protests uh, that happened in Hebron. And in response to that, so this was an Israeli soldier. Mm-hmm. that had opened fire on, on Muslims in a mosque during, I think it was like half five in the morning or something like that there in 1994. And the aftermath of that was that the Israeli army closed off the main shopping street, al Shwada Street, which was the economic center of Hebron in 94. And you can walk down at it night, it's an absolute ghost town. Yeah. That was the, so at the top of it, they have a a checkpoint that, Basically, at that checkpoint, people who have to go through the checkpoint ha- are given a number. Palestinians their on the numbers on a on a big list. And if you go up and say, "I'm a, my name's or a, I'm, a, I'm number or whatever 55," and then they'll they'll buzz you through, or maybe not buzz you through, depending on how they're feeling. And it's completely derelict. the people, they've closed off that street, and there's people who are living still on the street that used to be able to access their house from the street, but now they have to climb over roofs to get into their house because of the fact that they can't come onto that street anymore. There was a one shop there that uh, is run by a guy called Munir, who um, I met on both occasions, actually, right beside the right beside the mosque where the, where the massacre happened. And he managed to keep the shop open. He kept his shop and a couple of his neighbour shops open throughout the whole time, whenever no Palestinians were allowed, to, were allowed to go there. I'm not really sure how he managed to do it. But he's he's She's there now either. and he's, he's still in business. And when I actually recorded a little bit with him, and the first thing that he said was that the people that come to his shop, international, internationals that have come to to come and learn about what's going on there and that come to visit Hebron are like he said that we breathe. From your lungs, he was like he 's like you're basically our, our oxygen, the thing that 's keeping keeping mm-hmm. him alive and letting him maintain a bit of a livelihood is the fact that people are still willing to come there and spend money in a shop. Mm. Hebron has the only cafe making factory in in Palestine, so those the traditional scarf that were oh, the black yes, and white yes, ones yes, and the red and white it. ones. So and they also have a ceramics factory there, which actually is a that's where we got the stuff, for, got the
3: stuff for the pop so up shop. The pop up shop, yeah. And and you had brought us back some of those scarves as well, actually, on your from your trip.
0: Yeah, so there, the, you can get those scarves from China as well now in Palestine. So the the ones that I brought back are the original, the ones, legitimate like, ones. Yeah. so if you want a real
3: one, <laughs> <laughs> you want to promote actual. You know, you yeah. want to be the lungs. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's it's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, just how he said it, actually.
0: Yeah, uh, like. It it does. It's kind of typical of the actions of of Israel. The way that they have they punished the Palestinian people very, very dearly mm. for something that happened against them yeah. for the fact that an Israeli soldier went in there and attacked, them. massacred yeah. a load of worshippers. Um, you, in Hebron, like the settlers walk around with automatic rifles. Oh, okay. So you can get.
3: Was that shocking to see when you were there?
0: The, I mean we actually we weren't we weren't in any areas no, where they were walking around with, with the weapons but you can you think you can get like 18 or 21 or something like that or you, you can get a, an M16 rifle and, and walk around with it openly like walk around such a
3: strange because I mean even for me now even like going to an airport in a different country and seeing them armed I always find it really unnerving actually you know
0: it comes down to the indoctrination of, yeah. of young people who are in the the Israeli school system of and normalisation of mm. of that kind of uh, I mean, ha- there's no other way to get humans to treat other humans so poorly, other than to dehumanise yeah. them, and that's what's happening.
3: Just remove the humanity of them, and then it's it's easier to subjugate them, it's easier to be oppressive.
0: You know? They see them as, as as subhuman. That that's what it is. There's also a fear there that. Is put out by the by Israeli propaganda that Palestinians are sort of terrorists, mm. uh, people that they're uh, inherently violent, and they're all the same things that the British government were saying about Catholic communities in yeah, the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties in Belfast. Really the exact same things that yeah. we were a terrorist community that that that, and that's probably how the British government managed to. Convince young men f- that were living mostly from working class areas in Britain that they were coming over to serve their time in the army in Belfast and Derry to open fire on innocent people to Bloody Sunday and um, the massacre in Ballymurphy the fact that they killed so many kids with mm-hmm. um, rubber bullets and th- that's that comes down to dehumanization and normalization of the situation and that's what that's what's going on there and fear as well fear think of the lot, other
3: as well isn't it very much like you make them the other and that way people you know can feel that that kind of anger towards them and that rage towards them and then write it off as though it's normal and i mean we can see it nowadays i mean sometimes when you hear people talking about muslim communities and you kind of go well it wasn't long ago that they were saying that about us so
0: the building of the wall the apartheid wall in palestine serves Purposes on the Palestinian side and the Israeli side as well. On the Palestinian side, obviously, it restricts movement; it makes it very possible to contain Palestinians. Yeah. It makes life very difficult. On the Israeli side, it perpetuates the fear that
3: they need to be There's in.
0: danger on the other yeah. side of the wall, and You're you'll see that to protect us exactly
3: what's inside it or behind it. That's so
0: that perpetuates the fear; it makes it more likely for for um, soldiers and for citizens that are. To, to be afraid of what's on the other side of the wall. And you'll see that in when you're driving around, so basically the West Bank after the Oslo Accords is broken up into three separate areas, the uh, area A, B, and C. Area A are the areas that are under Palestinian control, under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Area B is under joint control, the Palestinians and the and Israelis. Okay. Essentially, I mean, they' are under Israeli control as well yeah, but sorry, sorry. <laughs> and <then> there's <laughs> areas c which yeah. are strictly under Israeli control there is that the Palestinians can't really go into as much yeah. and the settle so the um what was the seminar now? I the what were we talking about
3: we were talking about um keeping people within those walls and perpetuating yes yes like sorry so on the,
0: so the roads then the road the the road transport system is set up to sort of match that that separation of um, the areas within the West Bank, and there are lots of roads where Palestinians just aren't allowed to drive on. Okay. That's which is, you know, that's apartheid. That's, yeah. that's, so, the areas that the Palestinians, the, the and in there's areas where there's the areas that are under Palestinian control. If you're going onto one of those roads, you'll see these massive, massive red signs at the start of the road. And if they said it's off the top of my head nice, so it might not be exact, but it's paraphrasing. This, it is prohibited for Israelis to drive on this road. Going any further than this point is a danger to your life. And just basically don't drive there. A big red sign with white writing. They're all over the place. And that's, again, that's to perpetuate fear amongst Israelis to make it easier like going to justify off, what's going yeah. to happen to the Palestinians. I think that's how they justify those things that the, the way that the thing in gaza the language has is very
3: extreme like i mean there's no reason to threaten the life of an individual for simply crossing a boundary i mean as as much as saying it's just not permitted they're saying that there is going to be a violent response which means you know just the language around that conjures an idea of an individual that needs to be yeah violently attacked to stop them from just simply crossing a line yeah, you know
0: exactly Now, yeah exactly that's that's essentially what it is
3: um, so just when you were talking there about the boycott movement um, and just the idea of Palestine, Palestine in general, um, how dependent are the Palestinians actually on outside help outside of even just talking about that boycott?
0: I think that there, from my um, perception of that I, that I have now from being over there a couple of times is that the, the most valuable thing that international people can do to help Palestine is to share their story to boycott goods that are being produced by Israel, mm-hmm. especially goods that are being produced in settlements, to do something positive, that to make connections, to, to let the Palestinians who are living under heavy military occupation know that we can still see them, that they're not invisible. Yeah. And I think that that gives them a lot of... I think it gives them hope, not to say that that's not you know, the be all and end all the Palestinians oh, it's, are. are it's a positive. Yeah. Thing. The other side of it is that the, the fact that they are people who are doing things for themselves. You'll see that. I think that's, that's indicative of anywhere, who, any place that's been colonized that the people, the people have to resist Um they have to develop their own infrastructures as well and try and survive through those means. But at the same time, the international community has got a responsibility and a very, important role to play in getting some sort of justice for the people out there and yeah so awesome. I mean I think that from Belfast from from whenever we were in school I spoke about to a really good friend of mine Fergal on Day about this a few weeks ago but when we were in call Mansco colester or as it's known now this it started off the school didn't have any governmental funding and mm. uh, it again coming back to the narrative that was being perpetuated by the authorities about the Catholic communities was that it was like a a terrorist community, that you couldn't get an education through the medium of Irish, that it just wasn't possible to educate other humans through the medium of the Irish language. And of course, nobody accepted that narrative. But at the same time, I think that it sinks in to your bones when you feel such... Um, such like sort of disregard for your sense of identity and discrimination from the people that are supposed to be there to look after you. In in essence, like the, the, the government authorities are all supposed to look after the citizens of the places that they're governing, and we have felt the opposite of that. So that does sink in on some level, and we have a lot to thank, as I said earlier, for the generations that came before us for not accepting that narrative and for doing something for us that is going to last for our generation and for generations to come as well. But at the same time, it was important that people came from the outside and seen what was happening and said, look, we can see what's happening here. We can see that it's unjust. We understand that you're being oppressed here. We understand that what's happening is wrong and we're going to try and do whatever we can to help you to help you sort it out. And it's not that the people who came from international countries were the savior of our school, but they played an important part. But they saw in, you, they exactly. you and that
3: was, I imagine in that environment, like I, I can't, obviously, i would never experienced it, but I can imagine that when you're in that kind of a situation where you're growing up, that you can feel very isolated. And when you think these people over here, they don't hear us, they don't see us, they don't care that must burn and it is very important that somebody kind of even extends that hand or extends that solidarity to you and goes yes I do hear you yes I do see what you're going through I don't know if I can fix it but I will try my best to do what
0: I can yeah I think that at the time I don't know if we all appreciated that that was happening but looking back now I can see that it had a positive impact that that it is it's
3: you're very much in that situation at the time you know it's it's probably harder to look at it from that perspective because you were going through such a difficult time you know
0: yeah and 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 as well as that like yeah just from from a a Belfast context you know everyone has their own experience the same in Mm. in Palestine and it's not to say it's very easy to look back now and be like oh you know make it look like everything was real real always doom and gloom but it wasn't like so (laughs) and
3: (laughs) well you never you never speak of it like it was anyway you know it's kind of there also sounded like there were some great times there and great community spirit and
0: I think that if if you come from a place where you've you've recognised who had their foot on your neck and you can see that and that the way that it has happened say for example in West Belfast where where I'm from that the community has got together come through the other side and stronger and but once you see once you feel discrimination and um, or you feel any sort of like hatred like, like this way that the LGBT community will feel the way that refugees will feel in Ireland the way that um, people of color in a lot of countries in say in America or in England are mm-hmm. feet will feel discriminated against or feel that someone's um, you know has a hatred for them just because of what they believe in or the way they look or the way they are as a person. You can identify with other people then very mm. easily. And I think that's that's a positive thing that comes out yeah, of that.
3: Because it pushes you to want to be there for them and want to help affect change for them Yeah. in a way that you can.
0: I think it, the interesting thing is, is being in a comfort zone where you're happy enough with how you're doing yourself and then becoming detached with what's happening to mm. other people around you and yeah. feeling that, that it's an us awesome, and there is like weird. It should never
3: happen to us, we're fine. And actually, you should never really. You should never become so complacent. I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, all all human life is as is, you know equal. Yeah. So if you look, it at certainly it,
3: deserves the same compassion. You if know? you
0: look at it from that point of view, then there's no difference between. No, doesn't matter what colour skin is or mm. where you live. Um. So that's. I think that's probably where where it all kind of came from. <laughs> Getting really deep now. This is like, like counselling <laughs> like session. A counseling session. I'm sorry on that. I'm no, actually, but I think I I'm think actually it's laying important. on a sofa,
3: <laughs> wearing glasses. You know, <laughs> a little notebook beside me, which I do have. But no, I think it's important um, because you know I've, a lot of people have asked. Actually, a lot of my friends would have asked um, why the connection with Palestine. Like, why? What was what was the reasoning behind it? and actually i think there are parallels that can be drawn between the experience in northern ireland um or you know ulster with um what's going on over there because you know it very much it's not the exact same but there are elements of the same kind of oppression there are elements of the same kind of cultural issues um
0: yep yeah, there are and that that's that's I think why it's that's a good. Think that you talked about that element as well. I think that's a good starting point, yeah. but I don't think it's the be all and no. end all. It's no. it's that's probably the thing that sparked a connection with me or sparked yeah. an interest. But the thing with Palestine, the reason why I think that it should be easy for us over here to get to support the Palestinians in getting to some sort of resolution, resolution is the fact that it's in in a lot of senses like. It's very clear what's going on over there. Yeah. Um and as well as that America has got a strong hand in what's happening over there with the, with the way that they support the the Zionist project over there. And that's something that in a sense that we're connected to as well. Mm-hmm. It, like about like the Western the Europe and stuff like that, there I don't know how, how exactly to frame it in, in the right way, but it just seems like we have a an actual responsibility to stop this happening because yeah. of the fact that so many countries on this in this part of the world are supporting uh the settlement projects and everything like that they're or are basing their companies in Israel and that they're um we're in a sense economically benefiting if in a way over here in this part of the world of to what's going on over there and that's it's not it's not something you can just stand stand by and let happen. And that like that that phrase I have in my head all the time is that if you're neutral in cases of injustice then it means that you're automatically fallen on the side of the of the, oppressor. the oppressor and it's
3: very true
0: for us like we 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 need to stand against it yeah as as i said earlier like you don't have to scratch the surface too far in Ireland to get that spark and to see the connection and see the the parallels that that, that they it. have identify with
3: it, yeah. exactly um, i think that's very true um so just while we're talking on the topic of what the outside can do to help. <laughs> um, so how can people get involved in helping with Palestine? So do you want to talk about the pop-up for a shop for Palestine Could that we have, actually have this week?
0: So one of the things I spoke to one of the founders of the LATGI Centre about uh, was the fact that they have really big problems with diabetes, blood pressure, yeah, mental health and trauma as well yeah, that's yeah. going on over there and specifically in the AIDA camp. Um that it would be beneficial to have a little gym over there. And he mm-hmm. said that, well, they didn't have the funding for it, didn't have the the know-how of how to do it. And obviously that's kind of our, our bread and butter. So <laughs> I suggested that we could maybe help them out with that. And I don't know if that project, it's in the early stages yet, and there's a lot mm-hmm. to do to, to get it across the line, but we're going to try and make it work. The first thing that we're doing is a pop-up shop and in, actually in the gym on the 16th of December, which is this Sunday, um, 11 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m and we 11 a.m to 6 p.m we've got imported a lot of stuff from the West Bank itself which was you know not the easiest of tasks to get stuff out of there (laughs) so we have got some of it was very touch
3: and go (laughs) ceramics
0: from Mm -hmm. the from the ceramics factory in Hebron wine glasses from the same place there the cafes from from the textiles factory in Hebron there are handmade embroideries from made by women in Aida yeah, refugee camp actually. there are so soaps sure. there' are olive oil and t-shirts that are still haven't arrived yet so Some hopefully they're going to come here today they'll be for sale and we've got a few really limited Palestinian jerseys and things like that that are going to be for sale and we're going to put that towards the project that we're, that we're going to try and start with the, with the laggi center either way the, the money from this pop-up shop is going to the laggi center then we're going to run the gym jam which for the second year in July, which will be a big music night in the gym. So hopefully we'll we we'll put that towards this project as well. But that's mm-hmm. a little bit further down the line. If people want to get involved, um, f- with or, or learn more about it, I think, uh, reading reading book books, um, engaging with some of the the groups that are representing uh, views of the the Palestinian people pre- and presenting news as it's happening. The few of the good groups that I visited while I was over there was Alhak. Uh, they have a good website with some resources. There's A-L-H-A-Q. If you Google that, the website will probably come up. I think it's Alhak.com. There's Badil.
3: We can probably put it up on the podcast site. I can actually put those links if people...
0: But has got a really good resources online as well. B A D I L I think that's dot org. But we can put it on the show notes for sure. Mm. Then there's the IPSC, the Irish Palestinian Salary Committee. Yes, and
3: there's a Cork branch of that as well. There is a Cork branch. I I think think there's branch, branch in, in there.
0: every city I think in Ireland. Yeah. So wherever people are listening to, get involved. Or I don't mean people should just go and check them out and yeah, do what they feel is the right thing. And but the one thing that everybody can do for sure is they just stop buying is really good. I th- there's there's a particular barcode number. I think it's seven two nine. That's but. There's the first three numbers of the barcode that you can look at, and that's the Israeli one. I think it's 729, but just double-check that.
3: And I think a lot of... Well, maybe for certain produce anyway. I know when you pick them up, they actually have to state the country of origin explicitly in in some products. So you'll actually see that it's come from that region as well. Yes. So
0: So don't buy things that are from Israel. And also, if you want to go a step further, and I've done this on numerous occasions, is if you're in a shop that you do your your weekly shopping and they they are stocking stuff from Israel... Go and tell them to stop buying it, because yeah. that's going to have a big impact. You can not buy it yourself, which will have a good impact, and it, every bit helps. But go and speak to the manager of the shop and tell them that yeah. to stop bringing those things in to his really store. Filling
3: out customer feedback forms because I mean they they have to review those, they have to take them yeah. on board. You know, I mean, it's just as effective in that way.
0: Tell them that you're a regular customer and you're not happy that they're buying yeah. goods in from f- that are from um, settlement areas in mm. in Israel. And that you you're not going to shop there anymore if they keep doing it, get yeah. your friends to do it as well like that's you can make you can effect change that way and that I think that 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 does all add up. There's actually a list of things that are on the boycott list on the i p s c website to, so go on that and find out you know exactly what products a lot of like a lot of I think all of the Dead Sea products that are sold in Ireland mm. are they're are from Israeli companies as well, okay. and I we don't think that the Palestinians even have that really any access to the Dead Sea anymore. Maybe a few spots that they can actually go to it if they get the permits, but the Dead Sea products are, are settlement products, yeah. um, and there's there's a list of companies on the APSC website as well that are that are making those products. Yeah. And I think just to be open to to be open to learning what's going on over there. There's a good I book, question: what you're seeing
3: yeah. in the media. Yes, very much, you know.
0: Definitely. Don't take the don't take what's in in our in our sort of standard media at face value. Yeah. Because it's not it's not it's that's not what's happening.
3: No, absolutely. I mean you can see that even just recently with the um the media coverage of what's going on over in France, and it's it's only now in the latter stages of what's going on in the media that people are actually beginning to say it's not just about fuel, it's about a lot of other things that are going on that they're not really saying in headlines so
0: I mean, the media kind of, is a propaganda machine yeah so, you know, so i mean you have to i think that's one of the big things business. of
3: our generation now we really have to start learning to go well actually where am i getting this information from and taking that responsibility and the onus on yourself to actually go out and find reputable sources or finding other information where you can and not just relying on what you're seeing in those yeah propaganda machines <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> to borrow your term
0: there, uh, I mean, we could go on all day talking about this. So so many, so many stories that I can just that are just popping into my head now. Even just, we
3: should have a, an actual series, maybe, and come back to one or two of the topics that yeah, you might want to flesh out. Because I mean, be you'd, you, know, you've been there, you've made the connections, and I mean, while it, you, again, you've said you've only been there for the two week stints, it's still probably more experience than a lot of people will yeah. have had with that area, and I think that's important as well to communicate.
0: Like there's another refugee camp that I just maybe it's the last story to finish up on with, uh, the Deheysha refugee camp, which actually I ran through as part of the, the marathon in, mm. in March. And these little kids just kind of running, started running along with me and this other girl I was running with at the time. And, uh, they like one of them was wearing a big pair of leather boots. so Like you know, <laughs> they ran with us for like five like, k. there's a picture? There's a picture on the actually Instagram of us yeah. s- sitting with them, but uh, standing with them. We just stopped. Like the th- the whole thing about the half marathon was nothing. It wasn't to do with time. It was, just talking, to do with it was like, actually
3: ex- the experience of yeah. it.
0: Yeah. And um, but in that camp, they recently got a new commander of, on the of the Israeli army, and yeah. he, from the outset, said that he wasn't there to kill Palestinians, that he was going to maim as many Palestinians as he, as he could. Wow. And they started a policy of shooting mostly young men and kids, mostly young men, there's a lot of young men there now, in the left leg around the knee so that he would maim the person that they were shooting, make them dependent on their family Yep. Mean that they couldn't go to work, and a lot of the time, mean that they're that the people star. who remained in them couldn't go to work anymore mm-hmm. because of the fact that they remained in someone who was now dependent on them, and that's that was a policy that they that they carried out. And you'll you can Google that as well, and you'll you'll see um, some articles about that there. And even that, the
3: visibility of carrying that kind of, you know, change in ability and a change of a circumstance. I think they I have something like it. three
0: hundred young crazy. people. Who've been shot in the in the, in the, le- in the left leg? But the they they fig- figured out that the left side was uh, the the leg to shoot that you could cause the most damage in. Really? Oh. Yeah, for some reason, okay. maybe because of the way the, the arteries and stuff like that there. But um, yeah, they figured it out that was the that was the, the target, and just the
3: fact that that much thought went into it is slightly scary. Not slightly scary, very scary.
0: Um, it's madness. But the other things you you don't you don't hear those things like it's very, I would never have heard about that. I wouldn't uh, have heard about any except of for being over it, there. Yeah. So we
3: heard the stories that I'm hearing back, or the photos we would have seen.
0: Come down to the shop on Sunday. That's the key. It's the key message. i want to end
3: on a positive note, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So,
0: <laughs> but it's, all of it's awful. It's, it,
3: it really is about focusing on the positive changes that you can make. Thanks for podcasting me. It's been great. <laughs> Do it again. The same time next week. Same time. <laughs> With a Palestinian series. Yeah. <laughs>
0: As I mentioned earlier on, this episode was released just in advance of our pop-up shop for Palestine, which is going to be happening in our training conditioning facility at Ackley on Bishop Street in Cork City Centre, 11am to 6pm on Sunday the 16th of December. So come there and support us to sell the stuff that we have in the shop so that we can send the money back over to support the community centre that is based in the Ada Refugee Camp, that is the Laji Centre and show them a bit of international solidarity from Ireland. Also, as usual, this podcast is sponsored by Ackley, the strength and conditioning company that I have, and the personal training company that is based in Cork City Centre. So if you're interested in getting on board for a bit of personal training, a bit of strength and conditioning, and a bit of health and fitness advice, then go over to our website, ackley.ie, aclai.ie and have a look at the blog posts that are there and you can also book a complimentary consultation to come in and talk about your goals and make a bit of a plan to achieve them from that website as well so Shanae Khardjigil episode 26 of the Rebel Matters podcast is in the bag leave us a rating and review and some a couple of nice words on iTunes um, so that I can feel good about the podcast a little bit and know that you are out there listening I was Alakara. can you feel right with that